uh, years ago, I think it was either late elementary school or early middle school, I, I grew up in Stockbridge, a, a bit north at the north end of Henry County. And one day, a, um, a fair had come to our local, our local Kroger off Highway 138. And we just were begging my mom all week that it was there, please take us to the fair. And I know that it was not out of kindness that she ended up taking us there. She wanted us to stop asking to go to the fair. Well, we finally get there, and it was before nighttime. And fairs are not cool if it's not nighttime. You really see how bad they look in the daytime. And you're like, what have we gotten ourselves into? Nobody was at this fair this one particular afternoon but me uh, my best friend who lived next door and uh, my younger sister, uh, we're all like, we're gung-ho. We're like doing these rides. Now that I think about it, I'm like, I don't think I would ever let my children on these rides. But me and, me and my best friend, we go to this, this uh, the Ferris wheel and we're like, we're getting on this thing. Nobody else is around. Uh, a guy walks over and he's like, you guys want to get on this thing? And I was just like, yeah, yeah, let's, let's go. So we get up and it's, it's spinning around and we finally get to the top of the Ferris wheel when all of a sudden something, some belt or something, I have no idea what happens, snaps in the machine and the Ferris wheel just stops. And I look at my friend like, what is going to happen? You know, like I should have known, but here we are and now we're at the top of the Ferris wheel and I don't see anybody around. I look down to the guy that's, it's operating this machine, and we're like, hey, what are, what's going on? And the dude literally runs away. <laughs> and I'm like, what are we going to do? And, uh, and I, my, my late elementary school self, I was even pudgier than I am now. I'm like, are we going to have to get off, you know, just climb down this thing? It's like my friend's like, yeah, right, Chris, you know? And I'm just like, where did the guy go? He is nowhere to be seen. Nowhere to be seen. Now, I have a habit of not finishing my stories. So I'm going to go ahead and finish my story. We ended up getting down. The guy runs back at some point, and then he just turns it on, and we make it to the bottom. I have no idea what happened. I have no idea why he ran away. But here's what I want us to hear this morning. Because as we look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, we're going to encounter the risen Christ as he is in the heavenly places today, right now. And it is this risen Christ that is going to be John's and his original audience and subsequently ours reason and fuel for patient endurance. I want you to see, I think the text will bear this out, that Christ will never leave us in the middle of our tribulation. I don't have to approach Christ. We don't come to the risen Christ recognizing him for all that he is, wondering if this thing that he has talked about is going to work. I don't have to get to some point in my life when things seem to not be going well and wonder if Jesus Christ is going to run away. Do you hear that, church? Jesus 
is always there. And the risen Christ, seeing him now, just as he is in the heavenly places, is going to help us to patiently endure. That is the point of this last section in chapter one. So I want us to read it together. If you will, stand with me. I'll read it aloud, and we're just gonna honor the reading of God's word by standing. Chapter one, beginning in verse nine, we read, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're gonna ask some really basic investigative questions of the text. If you're walking through the book of Revelation, this is exactly the kind of thing that I would encourage you to do. Just ask some really basic questions of the text. And the first is this, who? Who, who is writing this? We see I, who? John, right there in verse Nine. The author of Revelation is the disciple of Jesus, that is John. John, who was a son of Zebedee, also the brother of Jesus. And in Luke 9, uh, we, we see where their name, the Sons of Thunder, come from. Uh, these, these brothers, uh, at some point, they were ministering or they see some ministering happening in a Samaritan place and the Samaritans reject them, and they go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, do you want us to go ahead and call down fire from, from heaven right now to destroy these people? They get the name Sons of Thunder there, John and James. John is also the author of a gospel account and the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John is a leader in the church of 
Jerusalem. And I, I want to camp out for just a moment on, on what he writes next in verse 9. Your brother and partner. John is writing to these seven churches. We'll focus really on them next week in chapters 2 and 3. But John is writing to a family of brothers and sisters. And this isn't a, a biological family of brothers and sisters. This is rather the family of God that he's writing to that have been adopted into this family because of the kindness of creator God. And so he's writing to these brothers and sisters, and they're not only family, he says, but he considers them partners in the faith. Partners in what? John writes, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. In, in my life group last week, we, we talked about that we in America have the idea that life is all about more. What's, what's next for us in this life? How can we leverage the things we have to get a little bit more? How can we increase our quality of life just a bit more. If we have more than we had yesterday, then we're doing okay. I often think back, I, I tell young couples this all the time, I still in many ways know I'm a young couple, but we've been married for 15 years now, and so there is a bit of life history, and I, I, get, to, I get the opportunity to tell young couples, man, when we first got married, some of you have the same story, and we had nothing. Anybody else? You feel that? It's like every young couple are like, we had nothing. We lived in a garage apartment. We paid $400 a month, and it was the best of times. And I think that success is measured if we just have a little bit more than we used to have, then we're doing okay. Now, that is our mentality as America, Americans. I'm upset right now that I have more equity in my home than I've ever had before and, yet, and less buying power than ever before. I can't do anything with it. That's, that's what I'm upset about. That's what we Americans get to argue about. Christians during Nero's time and Domitian's reign would have definitely had less than they had a decade prior. And it wouldn't just be financial less, it would be rights-less. They would have not been able to do the things in public worship that they were once able to do. They wouldn't have been able to speak the name of Jesus as they were once able to do in a way that you and I, frankly, have all the privilege in the world to do right now. What a gift that is. I literally can say whatever I want on Facebook, and you could just unfriend me if, I don't like, if you don't like it. That's, that's all that's going to happen. You, you may begin to argue with me on Facebook, and I can just block you. Me, the Christian. I could say, I don't want to participate in that argument. For those that John is first writing to, their rights are literally being infringed upon. They would have even had less access to food as a result of their faith. Now, now that's not to shame us. Don't hear that at all. It is rather to center us. Like we talked about last week, it's good to acknowledge the baggage that we bring in to a text like this. What we, we come into the text of scripture with. 
There was a conversation at our life group about what blessing actually looks like. That was filled in the first eight verses. We talked about being blessed if you hear the word, if you read the word of Revelation, if you keep the word of Revelation, you will be blessed. The people that are reading this for the first time and are hearing this for the first time would have not had the same baggage that you and I have when we come to a text like that. We think blessing and we're like, somebody's gonna give me a pay raise at the end of the week for reading the book of Revelation? Amazing. They're thinking, I'm going to be blessed in knowing how to relate differently to my creator and savior through this book. I'm gonna know how to patiently endure the literal, physical persecution that we're enduring as Christians. Praise the Lord. That's the kind of thing that these original hearers and readers come in with. So I say pay attention to our baggage because I want us to pay attention to the language of the New Testament and be sensitive to it. We're told in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 29, uh, 24, verse 9, Jesus says that there is coming a time when his disciples will be delivered up to tribulation and be put to death, even hated by all nations for his name's sake. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul writes there to the church in Thessalonica so that they would not jump ship because of all the hardships, and he reminds the church that they were in fact destined for those hardships. Now, that's not a popular message. That's not a message that is really going to grow a church today. And yet, it is the message of the Bible. We are going to be a people who are going to be formed through hardships, not away from hardships. Let's not lose sight of this. We so often want to hit the eject button on the Christian life when the pain points are touched, when the suffering comes, when parenting becomes too difficult, when our jobs get too demanding, when the pressures at school get too difficult, when we are ridiculed for our faith, when we have to squeeze our pennies. But Jesus actually says, this is the way that we will enter into the kingdom through tribulation, through hardship. Suffering is in fact a vital part of the disciples' life. Don't miss that this morning. Suffering is a part of the disciples' life. John's like, I want you to know that I am your brother in this and I'm also your partner in this. And y'all, he's about to give us the most beautiful reason that we could have patient endurance when you see the risen Christ, just wait. Now for the what? You see, this is a, a vision. He writes there in verse 10 that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day when he hears behind him a loud voice saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Now I'll show you a map of these seven churches and where they're geographically 
located next week. But for now, it's, it's um, sufficient to know that they seem to be written in the order in which this letter was circulated, in which this letter was sent. And it's in, also important to know that John was awake and he's alert as he receives this vision. It's not as though he was in a trance, that he was just unconscious while it was happening. He's awake and alert. Now, fun fact, John will say that he is in the spirit four times within Revelation. Chapter 1 here, chapter 4, chapter 7, and chapter 21. And each time that John says that he's in the spirit, we get new and different parts significant parts of John's visionary experience. So in this one, we're about to see for the first time what the risen Christ really looks like in the heavenly places. And John also gives us the day. What is that day? The Lord's day, what is that? That, that is going to be Sunday, okay? For the people of God, Jesus was resurrected on Sunday, the Lord's day, and this is the day that John has this vision. So there are some historical parameters there. John is saying, I am alert and awake. This is what is happening, and this is the day that this is happening. Now, when is this taking place? Now, we're going to go back just for a second. In Acts chapter 2, when Pentecost happens, when the Spirit falls upon his church and the Holy Spirit is given, the early church begins to explode. It grows like crazy by the thousands early on. And it grows like crazy for that, like that for a while, from the 30s to the 60s. And now Nero is in power and he begins to persecute the church. Well, in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. It's a horrible time for the church. You can go look in history. This is a really bad moment or what could look like a really bad moment for the church. This is likely the same time that Peter, Paul, and Timothy are all executed for their faith. As for when the book is written, I'll just be honest with you. There is a lot of opinions on when this book is written, but I think the most compelling is that it is written between 92 and 96 AD. In fact, that's what the early church fathers believed. Um, that's what the early church talked about. Uh, Irenaeus wrote that Revelation was written toward the end of the reign of Domitian, uh, which his reign ended in 96. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that as we go along. But 92 to 96 is when this book of Revelation was written. Where? In verse 9, we see that he's on the island of what? Patmos, which is an island between modern-day Turkey and Greece. Patmos, I, I don't know. I, I, I like to tell you uh, kind of what I was thinking as I grew up and as I read Revelation for myself and really did no other study. I kind of had this idea that John was like... Um, the guy in Castaway, that he was just on this island by himself and that nothing else was happening except he's given the vision, right? Anybody else have that same idea? Okay, nobody. Awesome. Um, I had this idea that he's just kind of by himself, but he's on this island of Patmos, which really, for all intents and purposes, was a concentration camp for rebels. 
And we even see in historical documents that there was likely a, a marble quarry at and on the island of Patmos. So while he was exiled, he was likely chained and working all, all the while. Now, why? John has been exiled on this island to live out his days. The latter half of verse 9 says, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, John lived in a moment when the current Caesar, Domitian, would encourage every Roman citizen to take and burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the Godhead, to this picture of Caesar himself, while saying, Caesar curios, Caesar is Lord. That was what was expected of a Roman citizen. And as they do this, as they give this burnt offering of sorts, they're, they're then given a certificate to guarantee that this Roman citizen has performed his religious duty towards Domitian, the Caesar, the Lord of the land. Now, that's kind of problematic for a Christian, right? Because who's Lord for the Christian? Jesus, the Christ. He is the only one in which we bow down to. And so John, he's not going to do this. And because he doesn't do this, he's exiled for his faith. John, here's the one who says, listen, I'm your brother and I'm your partner in this tribulation. And he has a history within the church already for doing so. One of my favorite passages is in Acts chapter 4, uh, when John himself has just been arrested for preaching the gospel. He then gets let go, and, and he's told, hey, look, you've got to stop preaching the gospel. We're going to let you go, but you can't talk about this anymore to anyone. And he's just like, I'm good. I'm going, I'm going to speak about this name. I'm going to do this. We cannot help but to speak about the one that we have seen and heard. Now, I want us to see that the profile that is built of John is directly influenced by the risen Christ. We don't read the Bible to compare ourselves to figures like John. We don't Look at the book of Revelation and say, am I being like John? Am I not being like John? How can I look more like John? The question really should be, how am I becoming more like Jesus Christ? But when we do encounter figures like this, who are in Christ, who are filled obviously with the Holy Spirit like John, it is good for us to take note and begin to ask some evaluative questions like this. If I were to need to take a stand for my faith. If even having a bumper sticker that said Jesus is Lord on it would get me in trouble, would I be willing to out myself? Would you be willing to tell other people, knowing that it is a very risk to your livelihood and to your family, to say Jesus is Lord. It's good for us to ask evaluative questions like that. Seeing Jesus as he is now helps us to patiently endure. Now, we see the one who John was to unveil. This is extremely important. Verse 12, look there with me. 
Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, let's pause here for just a moment. Uh, Last week, I mentioned that within the book of Revelation, we're going to come into contact with several repeating numbers and symbols. And so I've put just a few of those up here. That might be helpful. You can take a picture of this, write these down quickly if you'd like to, but I'll just walk through these. One third or one half, when we see that in the book, uh, means a limited scope or time. Three means a distinct group of people, whether that is divinity or false divinity. Three and a half uh, means limited time. It's half of the number seven. Four is going to be completeness in a universal sense. We'll get there, but just know that it is completeness in a universal sense. Six often means humanity, and, and what number comes to mind automatically? 666. Got to get that out of the way. 666. It's going to give us this picture of humanity, imperfection. Seven. We talked about this last week. It is going to give us the idea of what? Wholeness, completeness, perfection. Seven is actually listed 54 times in the book of Revelation. Ten is going to be completeness in the human dimension. Twelve, the fullness of God's people, tribes, and even his presence. And then a thousand is going to be a large number, expresses many. Okay, we'll see these numbers come up as we walk through this book. And while we're on this, the the number seven also plays out in the way that this book actually unfolds. Seven parallel sections in the book of Revelation, and you see those written here. And we'll cover through the end of the first section, the Son of Man and the seven churches next week, going through chapter three. And then in chapters four through uh, to the beginning of chapter eight, verse one, we see the Lamb and the seven seals of God's scroll. Then the seven trumpets in eight to 11, 19, the war with the dragon in chapter 12 through 14, the seven bowls of wrath in 15 and 16, the fall of Babylon, the whore in 17 and 19, you didn't expect that, and then the victory of Jerusalem, the bride in chapters 20 through 22. Now, this is going to be really important for us as we go through the book of Revelation because what we're going to see is just like I mentioned last week. The question is not what happens next, but what? What does John see next? What does John see next? So in these seven parallel sections, what we're going to see is different angles and aspects of things that may have already been mentioned. Now, back to verse 12. John turns to see this voice, and the first thing that he notices is what? Seven lampstands. What does seven mean again? Complete, wholeness, perfection. And what do the seven lampstands represent? What is it? The churches. How do we know that? What is it? Verse what? Verse 20. Verse 20, we're actually told that the lampstands are the seven churches. So that's good. Now, I'll just go ahead and say this up front. 
we're not always given what the images mean throughout the book of Revelation. But thankfully, Jesus tells us exactly what this is in this moment because it's incredibly important that we get this. Now, I won't say too much about this today, but as we get a picture of who Jesus is, we can't also miss where he prefers to be. And I think that this picture that John sees immediately is that John, Jesus wants to be where? With his church. With the church that he laid down his life for. That is where Jesus wants to be. How comforting it must have been for the churches in the midst of their really brutal lives to hear that Jesus is not far off from their suffering, but he was actually what? Right there in the middle of them. His promise in Matthew chapter 28 was that he would not leave his people nor forsake them even till the end of the age, is being fulfilled. He is with his church. Brothers and sisters, what good news this is for us today. There are things, you see, that we are just not going to know how to handle. By God's grace, I have enough pastoral humility most of the time to say sometimes, I just don't know. I don't know how this is going to work out in your life. I don't know how the sickness is going to affect your body. I don't know how the dementia is going to play out. I don't know if you're going to find another job in time. But I know that somebody is with us, and his name is Jesus, and he's promised us his presence. Isn't that good news? I don't know how it's all going to work out in the here and now, but I know that Jesus promises us his presence. Here's the deal. That news didn't stop or fix the suffering that these early churches were enduring, but what it did do is give space and perspective, and more than that, it provided the very fuel that they needed for what? Patient endurance, and that's what you and I need, isn't it? How do we get through this? Not how do we get out of it? And the answer is that Jesus is there in the middle of it with us, verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, we're going to see lots of likes in this book because, again, the words John uses are the closest that he can give us to what he's experiencing. When he says, like a son of man, though, we're immediately supposed to be confronted with Jesus's humanity. If we were really well steeped in the Old Testament, that is what we would be thinking right away. Now, let's stop for a moment. I don't know about you, but, but the image that I have of Jesus in my mind's eye, okay, I don't know exactly what that looks like for you. I'm not going to ask you to draw that Jesus. But the image that I most have available in my mind and memory is the Jesus that I see explained in where? Anybody? The gospel accounts, 
right? That is, after all, what we see most of Jesus's life. It's his public ministry. That is exactly what I'm thinking when I have the image of Jesus. Anybody else with me and Miss Cheryl? Anybody else? Yeah, that's the image that I have in my mind's eye. But it really should be the one that we get here from John. And maybe perhaps it will be as we move through this. Because this, this explanation of what John sees is how Jesus is now, right now, seated in the heavenly places. The one who is at the Father's right hand is like this. Now, there's lots of talk about a son of man all over the Old Testament, but here, like a son of man, clues us into a particular place. I think in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, and I have that scripture on the screen for us. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, as John has this vision, he's using what he knows from Daniel chapter 7. It is influencing the way that he communicates about Jesus here. Even last week as we looked at verse 7, behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds. It's right here in Daniel chapter 7. Anyway, let's put all this together. In Daniel, the Son of Man who is human receives what? He receives an eternal kingdom, right? And he's given everlasting dominion. So what John is trying to do as he sees this vision is he's describing and seeing Jesus as both human and what? Divine. He's like royalty. He's kingly, both man and God. He's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This not only describes for us a high priest who is present with the Father, but also a king. Jesus is not only one who is mediating on our behalf before the Father, but he also has the authority much like a king and even greater than a king, as we know. Now, these first century Christians were suffering under a government who literally punished people for their faith in Jesus. So this picture of the risen Christ is to help us see that no matter who is ruling, no matter who is reigning from the highest seat in all the land, that there is another, more higher, way up in the heavenly places who is also not far from us that actually is ruling and reigning and has all power and authority and dominion. Verse 14 tells us that the hairs of his head were white like wool, 
like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Again, John is picking up of descriptions in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel describes the ancient of days with clothing, white as snow, and his hair like pure wool, his throne, fiery flames. Jesus is being attributed with the ancient of days. We're supposed to think immediately that Jesus is God. And he's sinless. He's holy. He's other than. He's not like us in that way. He's pure, and he's also a purifier. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Now, iron is an incredibly strong material, but, but the negative is that it rusts. Copper does not rust, but it is bendable. It's very malleable. When these metals are combined to make bronze, they, they keep and maintain the best features of both. So what this is saying is that Jesus' feet are what? Strong. They're firm, they're steady, they're tested by fire, and his voice like that of many roaring waters. Anybody ever been to Niagara Falls? You could do a, a way better job describing this than I, because my closest attempt is Anna Ruby, here in the beautiful state of Georgia. But even then, it's close, Clint says, thank you, brother. You're affirming me. Even then, I've been to Anna Ruby, I've been to Amicalola. There's still beautiful feet, right? And you stand there in, in the presence of these waterfalls and you can't hear anything else. This is what John is describing is the voice that is Jesus's. It is like the sound of many roaring waters. His voice cannot be drowned out. You can't hear anything but when you're in the presence of the risen Christ. In verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, we're told in verse 20, again, that the seven stars are what? They're the angels of the seven churches and we're told that Jesus is holding them. I always do this. I'm left-handed. It's messed up, okay? I feel like this is my right hand. This is my right hand. Jesus is holding them in his right hand, the hand that you would hold something that is most special and prized to you, those seven stars Jesus is holding. And then there's the image of the sharp two-edged sword. We'll see this. In several other places in the book, this image of a sword, a two-edged sword. And when and we do, we always see that Jesus is speaking judgment in those times. But notice, this sword is double-edged. It has two sides. It can cut two ways. And I want no one to miss this this morning. Jesus' words are life to all those who are his. If I gave us a moment this morning to testify to the ways in your life, Christian, in which Jesus' words are life, we could spend all of our day 
Jesus' words are life to those that are his. And there is another part to the sword. Jesus' words bring destruction to those that are not. His words can bring both comfort and punishment. He speaks grace to his own and death to his enemies. But this is what I don't want us to miss. If you're hearing these words today and you have not experienced the life that can be found in the very life and words of Christ, I pray that his words might cut you deeply today. Surrender to him this morning your very life while his words still can bring comfort. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter preaches this message, and we see that people are cut to the heart by the message that they heard, and they say, what should we do? To which Peter responds, repent and be baptized. If you hear the message of the gospel this morning, if you know that you have found yourself deeply steeped in your sin in which you were birthed from your mother's womb and you've never tasted the words that are from the lips of Jesus himself, you can do that today. Turn, repent while there is still time. Run to Jesus who is life. There is absolutely no other way. Verse 17. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then John sees him. And what does he do? He falls prostrate before his Lord and Savior. One author wrote that John had seen the penetrating gaze of blazing fire in the eyes of this glorious heavenly king looking in his direction, exposing his hidden thoughts. He had seen his own filthiness in light of the pure white robes of Jesus and his own foolishness in contrast to the white-haired wisdom of Jesus. He'd been pierced to the core by the two-edged sword of Jesus, and John was undone. Perhaps he thought he was going to die right then and there, and then something happens, the text tells us, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. When John falls prostrate before his living Savior, Jesus reaches out and touches John. You see, anyone who recognizes their own sinfulness before a holy God in light of the beauty and glory of Jesus always falls in humility. That's what we do. When we recognize who God is, we fall in recognition of it. Our posture always becomes, Lord, have mercy on me. And you know what else happens when that occurs within an individual's life? Jesus brings new life. He touches us. That is the story of every single Christian who's ever lived. We come to a point in our lives where we realize that we are nothing but sinners. 
and there is absolutely no hope apart from a God who steps in to intervene on our behalf. And the beauty of the gospel is that God does that for sinners, and he's done that through his son, Christ Jesus. He died for us on the cross, giving himself up as a ransom while we were still in our sin. And for anyone who would call on the name of the Lord to be saved, Jesus does not stand there and laugh at us in our sin. No, he touches us, and we are forever changed. Isn't that good news? That is the story of every single Christian. Jesus reaches out and touches John with a beautiful reminder that I am the first and the last. I am the alpha and omega. It all started with me and it will all end with me when your life comes to an end. You see, there will be nothing to worry about for any who find themselves in Christ if you have been touched by Jesus. He says to us, I've already looked into the jaws of death itself. I went into them, I defeated them, and I walked out again alive. Your physical life will come to an end one day. Jesus says that he will keep you if you are his. He says, I've got the keys to death and Hades to this early church. They didn't have to wonder as the persecution rolled in. They didn't have to wonder, am I going to die before it's time? No, Jesus says, I've got the very keys to both life and to death. I know when it's time. And if it is, you have no need to worry Family, like John, we must begin to view ourselves as partners in the tribulation. That means that we're going to need to take some time to consider how that might look different than that what we see as the good life in the here and now. The good life that you and I might say, this is what I hope and want my life to look like may drastically differ from the life that Jesus actually has for you. Are you okay with that? Have you acknowledged that before your Lord and Savior? Life in Christ may mean that you are exiled like John on the island of Patmos. It may mean that you are marginalized as a Christian in your workplace. It may mean that you are not the most liked person on your school sports team. It certainly means, and this is what we as the people of God must be willing to grapple with, that our comfort will be at stake. But you will know Jesus as he is, and that will surely be enough. Certainly enough to help us patiently endure. How does the picture that John has given us of Jesus, help you see him differently. Seeing Jesus as he is now helps us to patiently endure. Let's pray. Father, thank you. What a gift you've given in the unveiling of yourself, in the revelation here that we might know you and know you differently, that you've revealed yourself to us as this glorious figure, both fully human and fully God, 
able to intercede for us in the deepest, most possible way, able to go before the Father and plead our sinfulness on our behalf. Father, I pray that you, by the help of your Spirit, might help us, might work into us uh, the idea that life is all about you, the one who holds the keys to both life and death, the one who died and defeated death, came back to life and is alive now and forevermore. I pray that you would help us this week as we consider how our life might look different if we were to align it with your heart and desires for us. Father, my prayer is for the individuals in here this morning that have never trusted in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that it would be now, that they would surrender their lives to you, that your Holy Spirit would cut them indeed to the heart, that they would know that without a Savior intervening on their behalf, that they would be lost and destroyed for all eternity. But Father, I thank you that you've made a way for any and all who would call out by faith to you right now. Thank you, dear Jesus, for loving us. Thank you for being with your church. Thank you for holding us and walking alongside of us. Thank you for keeping us. And I pray that that would be seared in our minds and hearts this week. It's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray, amen.